Well, good morning. I'm uh, privileged to be able to continue our Sunday morning summer series on the Psalms. And so let's begin with a word of prayer, and then I have a question for you. Lord, this is a, a glorious time this morning for so many reasons. We thank you for the lives of the children who were here and those who are downtown associated with Neighborhood Fellowship, that you give us an opportunity to love and to care and to nurture and to guide, to train and to model to them. We know that they are precious gifts from you. Uh, we receive them into our homes and into our lives as a church family. And so uh, I pray on this Father's Day uh, that you will encourage us, that you'll enlighten each person who is here. The Holy Spirit, uh, work through your word today uh, to teach us things that we don't know, to remind us of those that we do, and that... Um, in our families, in our small groups, and in conversations even around the table today, you would give us the opportunity and the wherewithal and the desire to have heard your word, to, to speak about it, and to love it, um, and to bring it to fruition in our lives. So speak now. Uh, we are ready to listen. In Christ's name, amen. Well, my question uh, surrounds the fact that God delivered to Moses uh, Ten Commandments. And do you remember what the fifth commandment is? Someone? Anyone? Yes, honor your father and mother. So this is appropriate, of course, because as we've already talked about this morning, this is Father's Day. This is the time to honor dads and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. And for many of us, this is a most enjoyable day because fathers can be towering figures of influence and pockets of strength and protection. And at the same time, uh, they can be comical and loving and fun. I read this week, there's nothing more contagious than the dignity of a father. Yet, as Edgar told us this morning, fathers have fallen on hard times in some corners of our culture. They're easily stigmatized and often maligned, and many men have abandoned their post as the protective family shepherd. Now, in my case, uh, my dad is 93 years old, and he taught and modeled for me uh, and my three siblings humility and diligence, virtue, and valuing family and heritage. We learn from him in the positive sense, fearing God, how to pursue a faithful life under the Lord's canopy of morality and purpose, that God created an ordered universe and supplied us the wisdom to live obediently within his design. But we all have varied experiences and relationships. So let me ask you this question. If you've had a relationship with a dad, what characteristic phrase of his jumps into your mind? Something that you heard more than once and if you think about it, you realize, yep, that's what he told us. Perhaps it's words of affirmation or warning or affection or protection or discipline. Here's, here's three of mine. Having built the first house that we lived in, my dad's a very skilled craftsman, and so as my brother and I were forever watching him repair things, 
he would proclaim, I'd like to get my hands on the guy that designed this. <laughs> and he also often would say, pace yourself, boys, pace yourself, as we'd be running around, uh, rushing and ramming through a job. And then he would say, if it's not one thing, it's another. <laughs> so the phrases that come to mind reveal a lot, don't they? And your mind might echo with a father's harsh, angry, or hurtful words. Or it might reverberate just with silence because he really said nothing memorable. Or his absence speaks the most. One thing is for certain. Not everything a parent says will be remembered or even heard the first time. But there are things that you repeat to your children that will be remembered and shape them. So fathers, grandfathers, how do you want to be remembered? And how will you be remembered? What words do you want to lay down as the foundation for the next generations? Well, Psalm 78 helps us to address those very questions. This psalm and the message this morning relate to more of us than simply the dads and the grandfathers that are here. So please hear me. Fathers are mentioned in this text, but this is for all of us, for men, women, single, married, those with children, those without children, and plus even children and youth themselves. So this is not a teaching aimed at dads about fathering. It's about telling something essential to the next generations. And so let's find out what that something is. We turn to Psalm 78. We're going to read the first eight verses. Psalm 78. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that... They should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful in God. This is a compelling proclamation to not be silent, to tell the coming generations. For there are some things that must be not be hidden from our children. The psalmist speaks of the high privilege and the responsibility of shaping a human soul to guide, train, and educate toward a certain kind of knowledge that forges character and faith. The psalmist begins with an appeal. He says, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. He's setting apart the distinctiveness and the value of what you're about to hear, of, of what he's about to say. Now imagine for a moment 
all the instructions you've ever received in your lifetime? What causes one of those to stand out as opposed to others? Well, I've heard some words that I've never forgotten. And on our wedding day, we were given a charge from Romans 12 from the officiating pastor, Quentin Small, a man whom we greatly admired. And at that, those moments, we inclined our ears to him. Contrast that with the steward who stands up in the airplane and tells me how to fasten my seatbelt. I'm not really paying attention at that point. Here in this psalm, we are being told this is essential instruction to build your family, your community, your legacy, and your future. And so let that sink in this morning, because more than likely you've already um, been on a device ingesting information that clamors and claws for your attention. So just as Keith had prayed earlier, let all of that drift away. Take a deep breath. Incline your ear to something that the Creator wants you to not only to hear, but to remember. Asaph is the author of this psalm, and he headed up the service of music during the reigns of King David and King Solomon, and he wrote several of the psalms. He speaks in that first person, I'm going to open my mouth, I will utter. And then what follows in these first eight verses really serve as a preface. The psalm itself stretches out for 72 verses. In the last 64, he recounts a history of the Hebrew people. So this preface outlines his reasons for rehearsing his nation's history. And that long section of the psalm, which we did not read, reviews God's mercies. It illustrates Israel's ingratitude and disobedience, and it gives warnings and exhortations. And what we learn is that Israel has not done a stellar job. And so there's good reason for the stark and startling warning that we read in verse 8, that they should not be like their fathers. Asaph is going to speak in a parable, he says, like a proverb. And for us, this is to serve as an analogy, these 64 long verses of Israel's history. Because there's a correspondence that can be traced from the story of Israel and our very lives. In his preface, the psalmist moves through a natural progression. We are exhorted to speak and not hold back, to tell the coming generation, and then he provides for us the what and the why and the source. In verses 3 and 4, he discloses what we are to tell, the content. In verses 5, 6, and 7, we learn the why. What are the desired outcomes or the aims of our instruction? And in verse 8, he reveals the source of our hope. So before we move through his logic in these verses, I want to give us two qualifiers. First, it's instructive for us to better understand the construction and working of an ancient Hebrew family. When Psalm 78 and other Old Testament passages address fathers as the ones who train and teach the children, what is being implied here? Well, Israelites perceived themselves as a large kinship group, all descendants from one common ancestor, Abraham. Four Hebrew words were regularly used in regards to this connection. There is the word people, which referred to the nation of Israel. The word for tribe, which was used for the tribal structure as descendants of the 12 sons of Jacob. There was a word clan, designating a group smaller than a tribe, but larger than a family. And then there's the word for family, which was literally 
a father's house. The normative role for the father was as the head of the household. And within this framework, the Old Testament emphasizes his responsibility as head to inspire the trust and the security of its members, rather than emphasizing the power and the privileges associated with his position. And unlike contemporary Western model that we have of the nuclear family, which consists of the husband and a wife and children, ancient Israelite households were made up of large extended families. This included the husband and the wife, and then the couple's married children's families, any yet as unmarried sons and daughters, and male and female servants and slaves. During the first 10 years of a child's life, they were the special concern of their mother. Home was the primary place for education, so the mother's example and instruction were vital. So we can picture children led by the head of the household in partnership with his wife while being influenced and shaped by grandparents, aunts, and uncles, all dwelling in the same household. And then with the advent of the new covenant, God's people were no longer related along strictly biological lines. Believers, like us, do not share a kinship through a common ancestor necessarily, as the Hebrews did with Abraham. We are now the family of God through our faith in the Messiah and shared life in the Spirit. Thus, the church naturally became a kind of extended family, not through blood relations, but rather a spiritual connection. And the responsibility to tell the coming generations to know and love and follow Jesus is shared and reinforced by all of us, the entire church community. In the family, the husband's retained as the head of the household in partnership with his wife, training their children. Coming alongside those linked by saving faith in Jesus, they encourage and exhort one another in the church community, which includes the children and the youth. So in both the Old and New Testament, a number of adults led by the Father fulfill the call to tell the coming generation of the power and the reality of God. The relative isolation of the American nuclear family can undermine the richness and the range of possibilities and opportunities for training described in the Bible. My second qualifier is to consider the variety of people we have among us this morning. We have fathers who have children in their home, some of whom through loving acts of adoption or foster care. We have fathers whose children are grown. We have grandfathers whose children, who grandchildren are close by. We have grandfathers whose children are distant, either geographically or relationally. We have men who are not fathers. We have men who will never be fathers. We have women who, with their husband, have children, some at home and some grown. We have single moms, some who are and some who are not in relationship with the birth dad. We have women who have not yet had children and some who never will. We have grandmothers, either close or distant with their grandkids. And then we have children and youth still under the authority and guidance of their parents. So just look around right now. Just look around at each other. And think, wow, <laughs> what a combination of individuals and households are here in this room and in our body. We are a community. We belong to each other. And the church is to maintain a distinctive cross-cultural expression in the world. We are to be noticeably different where a biblical way of life cuts against cultural norms. 
And in our culture, the discipleship of our children and youth by fathers, mothers, and extended family, and our broader network of interlocking relationships in this church is a timely, eye-opening opportunity for profound witness. Each one of us is valuable and meant to contribute to the coming generations. Each of us is needed. This Father's Day sermon is not only for fathers. It's for every single person. Let's look at the psalmist's declaration to speak and not hold back. First of all, what are we to tell? Well, there is to be specific content in our speech and our lives. The psalmist begins, you listen, because I'm going to speak. And what does he have to say? Well, in verse 2, he says, there are things that we've heard and known that our fathers have told us. So the message doesn't originate with the psalmist. The fathers before him have spoken. He's passing on stories, historical accounts, and spiritual realities. And then he switches from first-person singular to plural, from I to we. We have heard and known. There's a hearing of instruction, followed by hopefully a knowing of it, where I come to experience and to own the truth that I have heard. Mark Twain wrote, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. <laughs> so there's hearing and there's knowing. Believing parents have heard and have come to know a transformative truth about God. Truths about God, what do they do with them? Well, verse says, 4 says, we will not hide them from their children, but tell the coming generation. So the spread of instruction is interesting here. Asaph says the adult community has come to know from their fathers the ancient stories of God. They will tell them to their father's children. Well, if we're all in one generation, my father's children is us. It's, it's the peers. It's the same group of adults. So then in verse 6, this is extended to those younger than that the next generation might know. The children yet unborn and arise and tell their children. So our fathers have told us so that we know the truth of the Lord. We affirm this with each other, and then we tell our children, who will instruct their children who are yet unborn, who will then instruct their children. So what's to be communicated? Verse 4 says, The glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So our God has miraculously stepped into history to reveal himself. And those wondrous accounts are to be celebrated each generation. The seminal passage on parents receiving and extending this historical deposit is in Deuteronomy 6. In anticipation of entering the promised land, Moses delivers the Shema, outlining the family and community life for God's people. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in, the in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Moses is saying, you shall know the true God. 
You shall love him fully and deeply. You'll embrace his design for your life, and then you'll teach this diligently to your children. The language here is of intimate relationship and of emotional attachment. From the heart of God to the parent's heart, passed on to the children. And when and how does this transmission occur? In the natural course of family life, sitting, walking, at bedtime, in the morning. And then for Christian parents, extended family members and mentors, disciplers, all of us, the historical account and the wonders of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, along with the Acts of the Apostles and God's work in your own experience, are added to these Old Testament glorious deeds of the Lord. And what is the tone? What is the atmosphere? What's the relational context for all of this instruction? And so dads and grandfathers, you'd be wise especially to take note of this. Ephesians 5.1 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. So as adults relating to those younger, we imitate the Lord in the way that He relates and trains us. And Scripture says that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Ephesians 5.1 goes on to say, And walk in love as Christ Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us. So we follow the incarnational initiative of Jesus. He came to us. He came into our world. Sacrificial, gentle, understanding of our temptations, humble, forbearing, and forgiving. Colossians 3 reinforces this by adding, Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So it's not just the content of our faith, what you believe that you want to pass on to the next generation. It's, we have to be mindful of how it's delivered and how it's experienced by our children. As we consider our responsibility to children, there's an essential way that we are not like God. He's the creator and the possessor. We are the stewards. We've graciously been granted dominion to care for what he owns. So a deed declares that you own your land. The bank considers your accounts are full of your money. Some assert that their body is theirs to do with whatever they want. Actually, your land, your money, your very body all belong to the Lord, and you're responsible to him on how you utilize them. We are stewards. And your children... Well, you are raising them to release them. They do not belong to you. We can train and we can guide with joy and with trust because we know we are not in ultimate control of their choices and their destinies. And we are trusting the Lord to do what we cannot. Psalm 127 describes children as arrows in the hand of a warrior. They are aimed precisely with skill and care and then released. So let's think about this for a moment. What do you most care about? What are you truly doing with the years that you've been given? What are you devoted to? What are you excited about? What are you reinforcing? What are you inviting others into? The truth of your affections and your priorities become known to those around you. You're not that big of a mystery in the end. If you have children or grandchildren, 
Your actions and commitments are megaphones that communicate to their heart. The stories you tell, what you instruct in, the questions that you ask, are the calculus by which they determine what you care about. And this has been particularly convicting for me. My wife, Jan, and I have five children, age 35 to 19. And my stated goals for them, our stated goals, surrounded um, the things that Christian parents desire, knowing and loving the Lord, Christian character, loving one another, serving others. And we work toward those things. Uh, but I, other, I found that other hopes and aims for my kids were sometimes stealing my affections. Though I wouldn't come out uh, and admit it uh, directly, I could find myself getting more excited sometimes about academic, athletic, or social achievements in my kids' lives rather than my stated goals for them. And it didn't do me any good to pretend that this wasn't so. I had to examine my heart and ask the Lord to order my loves and not to eliminate the pursuit and the enjoyment of academic, athletic, and social skills, but to refuse to create idols out of them. So here's a question for you. What messages are you most determined to leave behind? Suppose I gave you a sheet of notebook paper, and you could fill it up on both sides, and it was to be left as your final definitive message to your children or to your grandchildren or to other young people that you're influencing. And it's going to be left in a bank lockbox to be opened upon your death. What would you write down? One page, two sides. I wonder if it would include scripture and stories of God's character and his interventions. If this would be your uncompromised message to the coming generations to shape them, I wonder if you're intentionally telling them those things now as you sit with them and as you walk by the way and as you lie down and when you rise up. The psalmist next moves from the what to the why, from the content of our message to the desired outcomes. The reason that we instruct and train is with an eye towards certain effects. Verse 5 says, God established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation. His four aims for the coming generation are for them to set their hope in God, and not to forget his works, keep his commandments, and not be like the rebellious generation before them. First desired outcome is to set their hope in God. In contemporary usage, hope refers to strongly desiring something, but with no real assurance of getting it. But biblically, hope is an indication of certainty. It refers to a strong and confident expectation. Hope is akin to trust. So one of our aims with children is for them to possess this kind of hope in God, not in themselves, not in another person coming through for them, or not for the impersonal universe somehow to direct their lives or line things up. Friends, we are faced with a momentous challenge in this regard. 
For in this cultural moment, God is being pushed further and further from the public square and the public consciousness. Our children are being flooded with messages from entertainment, education, media, law, marketplace, social media that dismiss or devalue the existence or need for God. To set one's hope in God finds itself becoming a radical notion. For the locus of authority and meaning is not being placed with the Creator God, but increasingly with oneself. And if there's no personal God in which all truth resides, there's only humanity left. So how can one person judge another? And this has to be addressed with more than Bible stories at bedtime, although that's exactly the place that we begin. A battle is raging for our children's minds and souls. And one of our aims is for them to set their hope in God. They need to know who He is and what He's like, the things He's done, what they owe Him, and that's our job to tell them. The second desired outcome, why we're telling the coming generations, is so they will not forget. As we know, all of us can suffer from short memories when it comes to the permanent things. And one fundamental element of their national life that the Israelites were never to forget was their unique identity and responsibility in the world. This calling puts into perspective the need for the children to hear about and to know the Lord. Israel is called the light to the nations. Scholar Michael Goheen illuminates the centrality of this theme. He writes, God makes tiny Israel the center of the earth, the focal point of history, and the goal of creation. God will pursue his purposes for all creation through Israel, first making Abraham into a great nation, and then blessing all nations and all creation through that nation. The nation that comes from Abraham is to live as a contrast people in the midst of pagan idolatry, embodying God's creational intentions as a sign of where redemptive history is going. Over time, faithful Israelites came to realize their astounding and unique place in the world. They were the center of the earth, the focal point of history. For the Messiah, the Savior and Restorer of all things, the way, the truth, and the life was to be born in the line of their King David. So can you feel how crucial it was for each generation to not forget who they were, what the Lord had done, and their place as the fulcrum of history? More than just another history lesson about someone's family tree, what was being communicated was the biggest possible storyline an eternal purpose that filled their tiny lives with a transcendent cause. Entrusted with a singular, irreplaceable deposit of truth and divine purpose, they knew they must protect and nurture it in each generation. The third desired outcome the psalmist explains is for the children to learn to keep the commandments. And this makes sense since in verse 5, we're reminded that God established a testimony and appointed a law in Israel. He established commands as expressions of his nature and his desires. They were not of the Hebrews' own invention. Their divine origin signaled the necessity of obedience. Lastly, the fourth stated goal for instruction. We read in verse 8 that these young people should not 
be like their fathers. Now, this is a curious directive, not the kind of thing that we expect on Father's Day or in a Hallmark card, but it turns out that their fathers were a stubborn and rebellious generation. They were not faithful to God, and if fathers are disobedient, we must be better than they were. Which leads us to the final observation from this psalm. What is our source of hope? As we seek to take the things that we've heard and that we've come to know and want to burn them into the hearts and the minds of those who are younger. Well, we know what it's not. We know where our hope isn't. Because Psalm 78 is a recounting of the persistent ingratitude and disobedience of ancient Israel. This starts with the exodus from Egypt. The psalmist records the responses over hundreds of years. Verse 17, they sinned still more against him. They tested God in their heart. Verse 22, they did not believe in God and did not trust in his saving power. Verse 32, despite his wonders, they did not believe. And verse 42, they did not remember his power or the day he redeemed them from their foe. So this devastatingly failed history leads up to verse 70 at the end of the psalm. So let's read this and see if a source of hope emerges. Verse 70, Psalm 78, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes he brought them to shepherd Jacob his people, Israel his inheritance. With upright heart he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. The Lord chose a king, a skillful shepherd to guide feed and protect his people. And this was the conclusion of the psalm at this point in history. But is King David the end of the story? To whom or to what is he meant to direct us? Well, King David is a signpost pointing us to the Messiah. For God promised that an eternal king was coming in David's line. Humanity is not our hope. Your fathers and mothers are not your hope. You are not your children's ultimate hope. We look to the flawless one with upright heart to save and to shepherd us. We look to Jesus Christ, the King. Let's tell our children, our youth, and each other that Jesus is the object of our instruction and affection, and he is our only source of hope. So coming to the end of our time together, I would like to address all of us dads, moms, grandparents, extended family, each one of us with or without children, please consider this one question. Who in the coming generations are you personally investing in? Who in the coming generations are you personally investing in? Which families? Which individuals? Of course, this begins with your own relatives. But can we reach beyond those bounds? One of the most dynamic, most vital dynamics for the church is to exhibit intergenerational relationships. The coming together of those of various ages and seasons of life into meaningful relationships. Investing in the spiritual growth of children and youth that you're not related to. And within our church, opportunities abound for knowing and encouraging those who are younger. And, of course, there are absolutely obvious places. VBS this morning, right? Seeing those children learned a song. They were taught stories from the Scripture. Someone this past week had to tell them those things. 
coming July 12th down at Neighborhood Fellowship in Indianapolis. That will be repeated with those children. Someone needs to be there to tell them. Then we have Sunday school, of course, here on Sunday mornings. If you're not comfortable teaching, you can be a helper. There's middle school and high school groups and retreats. We have prayer partners that you can sign up to pray for a middle school or a high school student. There's Habits of the Heart, Mom's Day In, Ministries for Women. We have opportunities to care for and to teach children. There's small group life, the heart of Christian community. We're singles and married, couples with children and those without, consistently gather together to share life and to pray and to study. Then there's all kinds of informal relationships with children and youth that are initiated within this body without the structure of an organized ministry. And sometimes these are the kind that are most meaningful. My wife Jan and I are humbled by the privilege of having five children. And when we reflect on their spiritual development, we recognize that it has been reinforced and undergirded by this church family. Adults, many of you who chose to love and to teach and to be examples to them. Jan and I also have many friends in this body with whom we've shared the joys and the struggles of family life. We've helped to sharpen each other and work through our inev inevitable failures. And then we have our current small group, which is made up of 10 adults and hopefully 12, uh, a couple soon joining us. We have children, 10 children, age 10 and younger, and one on the way. And it's a little community where we love those children together and good things are happening in their hearts toward, that, toward God. I get down on my knees and I look them in the eyes and we say a few words with each other. And they know I know them and they know that I care about them and their family. And then as they grow, eventually they'll realize what it, that what it means that the bond that I've had with them and we've had as families is forged through Christ. And of course, this can happen with neighbors as well. We were blessed to live next to David and Sam Seward for over 20 years and to raise our children together. And as you heard this morning, Sam passed away yesterday after a 12-year battle with cancer. And on Thursday this week, our family was fortunate to visit her in their home. She had been sent from the hospital to home and been told that she had a few days to live. She was weak and in pain, curled up in a hospital bed uh, in her upstairs, their upstairs bedroom. And we entered the bedroom, and Sam invited us each, one by one, to come and sit next to her. And she looked us in the eyes, and she touched each person, and she delivered to them a well-thought-out exhortation, a blessing, a charge meant just for them. And I watched her talk to our 18-year-old son, Graham. And she's known him from birth. She's influenced his life and spiritual development. And now she spoke to him, surrounded by two of her daughters with whom he had grown up. And she exhorted him from a unique place she had in his life. Stay faithful to the Lord. She said, stay faithful to the Lord. It was like something right out of Psalm 78. Sam telling Graham what he needed to hear so he would set his hope in God and not forget the works of God and keep his commandments. The beautiful bottom line 
is that the Lord wants us to dedicate ourselves even to our last breath to influence the next generation. We're enveloped through Jesus in the focal point of history, in the goal of creation. And what matters more than knowing and following Him? So fathers and mothers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, small group leaders, disciplers, mentors, adult friends, I commend each one of you. And I thank you for what you're doing. Let's press on and not grow weary in doing good. I'm going to leave you with uh, these four questions for you to discuss with your family or friends or small group. Number one, again, what families or youth am I investing in? Number two, what am I most passionate about communicating to them? What am I most passionate in communicating? And are there other things that I should be communicating? Number three, how am I specifically telling the coming generations about the wondrous deeds of the Lord? How am I doing that? Is it from Scripture? From my own life? And number four, how can I encourage them to personally set their hope in God and obey Him? Thankfully, we have an eternal King who shepherds and guides us and our children with a skillful hand. We can trust Jesus. And we have a good, good Father who shows us what it means to provide and to protect. And we love Him. Lord, thank You for revealing Yourself, for all that we have learned from You through Your Word and through Your people. Lord Jesus Christ, You're our brother, our friend, and our guide. We so much want to know You better and to reflect You to this world and to please You. And then our hearts turn to the coming generations and we care about them. And we know that you want to fulfill so much in their lives as well. Give us wisdom. Give us courage and boldness. Give us mindfulness that we can remember you and we can remember to tell and live before them the things you want us to. In Christ's name, amen.